What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I'm Graham. And I'm Dave. Today, we're talking to Kyle Torpy about different happenings in the Bitcoin community. Kyle is a longtime contributor to Bitcoin Magazine. His work has also been featured in Vice Motherboard, Business Insider, The New York Post, American Banker, and Forbes. But first, here's what's going on. Fidelity Investments and E-Trade Financial Corp. have plans to launch digital asset trading platforms, according to separate Bloomberg reports. Fidelity's cryptocurrency subsidiary, Fidelity Digital Assets, is close to launching Bitcoin trading for its clients within a few weeks. According to an anonymous source, their new Bitcoin trading service will initially only be available to institutional investors. E-Trade's crypto trading service will first offer Bitcoin and Ether, but does have plans to list other assets in the future. Last year, the brokerage opened up access to Bitcoin futures trading from CME Group to its customers. Fidelity and E-Trade's move into Bitcoin comes on the heels of a report that TD Ameritrade is also testing out a crypto trading platform, joining the likes of Robinhood and a short but growing list of traditional investment platforms who have already entered or at least interested in joining the crypto space. According to a recent study by Longhash, the percentage of coin-joined Bitcoin transactions has tripled over the last year sitting at 4.09%. CoinJoin works by allowing multiple users to pool their individual transactions into a single group transaction, which essentially scrambles the funds and obscures the link between sending and receiving, greatly improving anonymity. One factor accounting for the CoinJoin boost has been the advent of Wasabi Wallet, whose intro to the crypto industry is largely responsible for more than one out of 25 Bitcoin transactions using CoinJoin technology. Wasabi Wallet intends to make the technology of CoinJoin more accessible and convenient for the average user by adding features of security, privacy, and user experience. As of April 2019, they have garnered more than 33,000 user downloads and have claimed to have made almost 30,000 Bitcoins fungible through their platform. On Tuesday, May 7th, 7,000 BTC, or 2% of Binance's entire BTC holdings, was stolen by hackers. After reporting the hack in a blog post on the company's website, Binance CEO CZ stated that Binance will use reserves from its secure assets fund to compensate users so that no customer funds will be affected. While trading on the Chinese crypto exchange continues, Binance temporarily suspended deposits and withdrawals. After the hack, CZ suggested the idea of reorganizing the Bitcoin blockchain to rewrite the hack transaction as though it didn't happen. He quickly backpedaled from the suggestion after deliberating with other industry leaders over the sheer difficulty and possible loss of Bitcoin's credibility if such a thing were to happen. Added to this, the proposition of rewriting the Bitcoin blockchain's history was met with fierce opposition by the community. Not only would this reorganization be an ambitious undertaking, it could instigate a split of miners within the community and not to mention shake the overall confidence in Bitcoin's mutability. In light of the hack, these reorganization discussions in the community, especially on Twitter, have shed light on how important the non-technical aspects of Bitcoin play a role in its future. The legal conflict between Bitfinex and the New York Attorney General's office over $850 million in missing funds continues. The Exchange and New York's legal advisor have both sent letters to the New York Supreme Court arguing their side. The argument from the Attorney General's office is that their requested probe is in the interest of protecting the public. Their concern for the exchange drawing on Tether is that there is not enough assurance for security with the stablecoin, and therefore there is a significant possibility that their additional funds could be lost. Still, Bitfinex isn't budging, calling the court order a massive regulatory overreach. 
The exchange denies having done anything wrong and rejects the need for further illegal probing or cutting off its line of credit with the stablecoin Tether. In the background of all this are the exchange's missing funds tied up with crypto capital. Although part of the missing funds have been confirmed as being seized by regulators, Bitfinex and Tether stated in a recent filing that they do not believe that the funds have been seized, as previously stated by Crypto Capital. The Panama-based payment processor Crypto Capital services a number of other cryptocurrency exchanges, including Quadriga CX and CEX.io. Kyle Torpy has been writing about Bitcoin since 2011. And today we're talking with him about recent happenings in the Bitcoin community. Like, how does one measure decentralization? What should we avoid on Bitcoin Twitter? And how much do Bitcoin users actually need to participate in these ongoing debates? Here's our interview with Kyle. So Kyle, you've covered a bunch of articles about Bitcoin over the years. Do you focus more on the technology or the community itself? It's kind of both. You know, there's so many different facets kind of when it comes to like what brings people to Bitcoin. There's like the sociological, like you said, the technical gold bugs come to it. Cypherpunks come to it. I try to cover pretty much every single aspect of it because that's how you get uh, the best like overall picture of what's going on, I would say. I mean, any the the sociological and the technical aspects are kind of intertwined because you know, Bitcoin creates uh, incentives kind of in its in its code that everyone is then, you know, incentivized to act in a certain way. The miners are, you know, incentivized to properly, you know, order transactions. Um, everyone's incentivized to, you know, run a full node to make sure, you know, all their transactions are actually Bitcoin transactions. And I actually wrote about a piece about this for Bitcoin Magazine where I talked about like, underlying code of Bitcoin is kind of what creates the incentives for this so-called uh, toxic maximalism that people complain about on Twitter and social media um, because people are kind of incentivized to you know protect the decentralization of uh, Bitcoin at all costs. And the reason people do that is because of the incentives created in the Bitcoin system. And uh, Satoshi even talked about this kind of where he talked like, uh, there's that quote where he said like, Bitcoin users might come become increasingly tyrannical about the about keeping the block size small or something like that. Because he was talking, I think it was in the context of talking about like Namecoin. So he was said basically saying like, they should have like a completely separate blockchain for uh, Namecoin and keep Bitcoin just for Bitcoin. Kyle, can, can you just explain what the block size is on the Bitcoin blockchain? Well, now it's called the block weight limit because it was kind of altered with the segregated witness improvement. But the, effectively the idea with the block size limit is it's the limit on the number of transactions that can be included in a right. block every 10 minutes. Um, so if you, it, and that has a uh, impact on the cost of operating a full node. I would recommend people who like want to dive deep into that to read Paul Stortz's, uh, I think it's called a blog post called Measuring Decentralization. He goes into, you know, how the cost of operating full node is, you know, effectively one of the better ways to measure the level of dis- decentralization in, in Bitcoin. And that, that's probably on his uh, Truthcoin blog. So how would a user go about actually measuring Bitcoin's level of decentralization at any given time? I mean, it's difficult because we don't really know how decentralized mining is. Like there, all we really have to go on is are those charts of like the distribution of the mining pools, but that doesn't really tell you much because 
those mining poles are made up of a bunch of individual miners who can like move to a different pool whenever they want. So there's that. There's like the cost of operating a full node. And the location of a Bitcoin node is not supposed to be public, right? Potentially, yes. Like that's kind of like the whole value prop- proposition really at if you want to get more into it at the technical level, in my opinion, is that, um, and this is actually discussed in the sidechains, original sidechains white paper, where the basic uh, problem that Bitcoin solved is you want the people that are, you know, basically processing transactions to be potentially anonymous. So it's not even really necessarily the level of decentralization. It's more that they're anonymous and incentivized to act properly. Um, right. So that I wrote this other piece about, um, you know, how Ripple and Stellar aren't really cryptocurrencies because they don't really allow for anonymity in their, um, you know, the validators in their systems because it, you, it, it can't work because it would be open to civil attacks and, you know, like all the validators could be the same person and you wouldn't know. So Bitcoin solves that with proof of work, basically that, you know, the miners prove that they you know have some skin in the game. So they should be, you know, somewhat trusted, you know, it's, it's not like a huge amount of trust, but they're, you know, trusted to order transactions and not collude to cause double spends and thing like, things like that. So recently you read an op-ed for Bitcoin Magazine about how Bitcoin makes privacy a polarizing topic. Can you explain that thesis? Yeah, I mean, it, as Bitcoin itself gains more privacy, hopefully, I think it becomes, you know, maybe more clear to people that like, you know, this is why we're all here for the, for the kind of the cypherpunk ideology, whether people realize it or not, because, you know, that, you know, people will say that only, you know, creates like use cases for criminals, but there are, you know, a number of interesting use cases for non-criminals too. And, you know, some things that are criminal, maybe they shouldn't be legal or whatever. So it's it's good to have this, you know, alternative for people to use, especially with, you know, the world moves closer to like a, you know, cashless society. Eventually you have this kind of black and white option between, you know, complete surveillance or, no surveillance. As everything becomes like more digitized, it, it there's less of a gray area there in terms of like how closely governments are tracking everything. You read another article about how people in the Bitcoin community should deal with people in the space who are toxic, like a fraud. Why did you feel the need to write that article? Yeah, someone like that person is really just looking for attention more than anything else. So I think it's similar to, you know, whether you like Trump or not, like he definitely used the media to, they basically, like the media basically turned their news networks into 24-7 coverage of Trump. And now a lot of them are looking back on that and saying like, well, maybe we really, we should have just like, you know, covered him differently instead of like making our news networks cover him 24-7, have all these people like raging about him all the time. So when it, you know, I think about this a lot in the context of Twitter, because I use it a lot. And I think it's it's probably better, you know, if someone is, if there is some like scammer out there who's just trying to get more attention and bring more people into his scammers cult that you should really just, you know, if you want to, you know, reply to them and, you know, point out why all the things that they're saying aren't true or all the things they've done in the past, why you shouldn't believe this person, you know, that's probably, I, th- I think the best course of action, but I don't, you shouldn't be like, you know, I don't think like quote tweeting people and like bringing more attention to them is such a good idea because that that's, probably really what they want at the end of the day. That's the reason they make all these outrageous claims is they just want you to get outraged and then you know quote something they say and put it on your Twitter or other social media or write an article about it. More people find out who they are and then maybe they can get scammed. But yeah, it's, it's a hard, it's a difficult, there, are, there isn't just one individual in this space where 
I've, I've thought about how to deal with, you know, all the, the lies or misleading statements that they make. Do you have any general advice for newcomers to the Bitcoin Twitter community? I mean, people are always going to be mean on the internet. So that's one thing to remember. So you, you kind of have to have tough, tough skin or just like, don't get too upset if people call you an idiot or something, because that's going to happen a lot. That's In true. terms of the community, like another thing to remember is like, I mean, it depends on what you mean by the community. Like there's a hardcore user base and those are the ones probably on like Twitter and stuff. But the vast majority of people that are using Bitcoin probably don't even know about the block size debate and things like that. It's, it's important to remember that some people are just out there like using Bitcoin and don't really think about like, you know, all these um, technical, technical debates that, that happen underneath the surface. At this stage, do you think like newcomers need to be aware of these more technical debates? Yeah, people do need to be aware that, you know, why they're using Bitcoin in the first place. And I definitely do think that's it's not necessarily necessarily an issue right now. But I mean, it could become an issue if people don't understand, you know, why Bitcoin is valuable and why it's important. And then, you know, everyone goes and goes off and uses something else that's basically like a government, you know, could it, Bitcoin could turn out becoming like the complete opposite of that, that like cypherpunk vision. And, you know, every transaction is completely tracked and traceable and that's an issue because you need like the liquidity for a money to be useful so if like everyone moves over to this you know government coin or whatever that makes bitcoin itself much less useful um you know and that's obviously one of the problems with bitcoin today that it's not that liquidated so it is like still very volatile and less useful as a money you started something on twitter called crypto retreat can you explain what that is yeah that's just something i've been uh Working on, I kind of wanted like just one news feed that I could look at throughout the day with all the important stuff. It's basically just anything related to Bitcoin or, you know, online privacy. Um, Because I think there's like a huge, there's a lot of, there's a lot in common with like why Bitcoin is useful that we we already kind of covered. And then like why, you know, Facebook and Google are, you know, people are kind of revolting against those. It's kind of like the same I see a lot of similarities there in terms of like people protecting their data. And if you look at like Bitcoin as just like financial data, then, you know, it's, it's all about people like protecting their, you know, right to privacy. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just like a news feed for all of that kind of stuff. Um, it's still a work in progress. It's very, I mean, I, I kind of just made it for myself and then put it on Twitter. So um, other people could use it too. And I've, I've been getting pretty good feedback on it, but I'm still tweaking it a lot. And it's just something I've been building in my free time. Okay. What the heck is going on with the at Bitcoin account? So I, I put an op-ed out in CoinJournal because there was a, everyone was talking about it on Easter weekend, but I was like with family at the time and stuff. So I was just kind of reading stuff and didn't really participate that much. But then I went back and I thought about it a lot and put out an op-ed where, well, because first of all, like if for those who don't know, the account is tweeting out like basically Bitcoin cash propaganda nonstop. So it's basically like a Bitcoin cash account. So a lot of Bitcoiners want them to want Twitter to like ban the account or give it to someone else because it's like misrepresenting Bitcoin basically, uh, which I tend to agree with. And there's been a lot of people that have been speculating that the account was bought by Roger Ver, who, you know, was very, a very important figure in the early days of Bitcoin and got the nickname Bitcoin Jesus. But now a lot of Bitcoiners call him Bitcoin Judas because he's uh, just because of a lot of his uh, shenanigans, including owning Bitcoin.com and using it as a platform to uh, promote Bitcoin Cash and I would say mislead people into thinking Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Core are like two flavors of the same thing or uh, that kind of thing. Because I had heard a rumor a while ago. So I was writing this op-ed. I talked to 
uh, Pete Rizzo from Coindesk, and he confirmed that the account was leased to Coindesk from 2013 to 2017. And, you know, the activity of the account did change after that. So it's unclear if, you know, that the original account holder still has it or it was sold to Roger or someone else. But yeah, my view on it is I kind of went into this like long spiel that would apply to a lot of other uh, words um, in this, uh, just like nouns like um, technology or business, you know, because Bloomberg, they own the at crypto at technology at business um, because they're valuable and they want, you know, to have those handles. They want to be like the authority on those topics. So my whole spiel was like, instead of like Twitter allowing, you know, people to grab those accounts and squat on, like basically do domain squatting on them, they should just like lease out the accounts themselves. You know, as long as whoever they lease the account to is not doing crazy things, you know, they can, you know, earn a additional income that way, perhaps. Basically, I think the Bitcoin at Bitcoin account should just be auctioned off to the highest bidder. And as long as they're not like scamming or, you know, um, as long as they're, you know, Twitter thinks they're creating quality content for the Twitter user base, then, you know, they'll get to keep renting the account from Twitter. We interviewed Jameson Lopp a few episodes back and he talked to us about his level of privacy by comparison, where do you fall on the privacy spectrum? Yeah, I've, I've read a lot of Jameson's stuff and listened to a lot of his interviews about this. And a lot of it is like really demoralizing because it's just so hard to uh, secure your privacy or, you know, use software that isn't proprietary and you can like go through and read the code. Yeah. You, know, you have to give over all of your personal information to do like anything, like your address, your phone number, your you know, whatever. I mean, I just, earlier today, I was, I got an email from someone because I was thinking about writing for their website and they sent me like this form to fill out uh, as part of like their application. And they were asking for like my home address, my p passport number, like all this other crazy personal data that like, it's just like generally accepted that like none, like people just hand over this data without really thinking about it much. And all, and all of this, all of this data is like, people will say like, why do I care? I don't really care about privacy or whatever, but it, it, I mean, privacy is connected to like security. And I remember some interviewer Lap was talking about this, like with people on Twitter, if you have a certain amount of followers, you don't know how many of those followers are like mentally unstable. So you could just say something on Twitter that like triggers someone and then they can easily gain access to, you know, your address or whatever with some basic like Googling um, and then show up at your house and, you know, try to do something to you. I mean, that's that's in terms of like the the pitch on why people should care about privacy. I think they should think about it in terms of like security, like the less people know about you and you know your activities and everything, um, the more secure you are. And I know I, me and Jameson are probably like very on the more like paranoid spectrum for this kind of thing. And that's probably why it, what brought us to Bitcoin in the first place. You know, I think it will become more important as as you mentioned, like as the world becomes more digitized, even more so than today. And yeah, that goes back to what I was saying about, you know, why Bitcoin is valuable in the first place. What projects have you been excited about lately? I like uh, Wasabi Wallet a lot. They've like very much put forth the effort to bring more privacy to Bitcoin. They're, the whole purpose of the wallet is to do more coin joins. And I'm not sure if like the increase in coin joins recently is directly tied to them, but you can see like a direct increase in the percentage of Bitcoin transactions that are coin joins since they launched in August of, I think it was last year. 
So, I, I mean, yeah, the, anything that um, makes it easy for people to use Bitcoin more privately, I'm definitely for. And I also like, you know, all the, the Lightning Network stuff for the same reason. And, you know, obviously because it'll make the payments, uh, payment experience better for uh, people. And then another one I like is um, Abra because they basically let anyone in the world to, you know, get some Bitcoin and then peg the value of that Bitcoin to any real world asset in the palm of their hand on their phone. So they have like private keys on their phone and those private keys are tied to the value of some Bitcoin in or some Bitcoin in a smart contract that tracks the price of, you know, like Apple stock or the US dollar or gold or like whatever. So you could have like people in Venezuela, for example, who, you know, they're dealing with hyperinflation, but then, you know, like Bitcoin is still pretty volatile itself. Um, so they could like, you know, obtain some Bitcoin and then peg it to the US dollar or something or whatever they choose. And that makes it like the, the value of Bitcoin to them even stronger than it would be if they were just holding like, you know, free floating Bitcoin. Um, but the one thing I would say about Abra is that I don't think it's like sufficiently decentralized yet. So it could, it seems like it could be easily shut down in its, in its current form. But I think they're working on, you know, decentralizing their platform more over time. But that, I mean, that, I, sh I should also say like, the only way they can really solve the centralization problem is by decentralizing the Oracle that makes it possible to track the price of all the real world assets. And I think that's an extremely difficult problem to solve. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. Today's episode was produced and edited by myself and Dave. Stories in this episode come from articles written by Bitcoin Magazine staff, including Peter Chihuahua, Colin Harper, Jimmy Akee, Landon Manning, and Aaron Van Weerdum. Theme music provided by Billy Sly from the Crypto Cantina. Special thanks to our guest Kyle Torpy, and of course, Satoshi Nakamoto. We are eternally grateful. Visit BitcoinMagazine.com for more in-depth news, analysis, and resources about the most successful peer-to-peer -peer currency. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Bitcoin Magazine. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcast. And if you've got the time, please leave us a review. It really helps us improve the show and reach new listeners. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll see you next time.